At the Canaan Church, our mission is bringing people to Christ and helping every person to become a mature disciple in Christ. Canaan Christian Church, where people dare to dream. We'll get to this text in just a minute, but you can go ahead and turn to Titus, turn to Titus, uh, the book of Titus in the New Testament, chapter 1, Titus, chapter 1, Titus follows uh, first, uh, uh, second Timothy, rather, follows second Timothy, there's first Timothy, then there is second Timothy, and so if you'll turn to the book of Titus, amen. Now, <clears throat> as, we, as I get ready to get to this study, let me remind you that on Sunday, I said that I'm asking everyone uh, between now and the end of June that you read in the Old Testament, read the book of Ezra and read the book of Nehemiah. And then in the uh, New Testament um, that you would read... Um, First and Second Timothy, First Timothy and Second Timothy, uh, in the New Testament. Amen. Um, did I add Titus to that when I said that Sunday? It was just First Timothy and Second Timothy. Yes, First Timothy and Second Timothy. Um, I said Sunday that <clears throat> there are various Bible reading plans where you can read the Bible through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation in one year. And I really had purpose to bring that before us as a congregation uh, in January, but with this year of celebration, so many different moving parts, it just got by me. But next year, uh, starting in January, I'm gonna present to you a particular Bible reading plan where you read through the Bible uh, in one year from Genesis to Revelation. But for this year, I'm going to just have us reading selected uh, books of the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, throughout the rest of this year uh, to get people in the habit of reading the Bible. In days past and gone, we were known as a people of the book, a people of the book. And let me help help you uh, with this with this discipline. Uh, some someone sent me one of our members sent me as an idea. Um, you know, that rather than reading the Bible through in one year, uh, to do it in two or three years, and uh, and then with their reading, uh, be studying and so forth. Uh, but uh, we don't want to do that. No, we, we want to read the Bible through in one year, from Genesis to Revelation. And what I want you to understand is you don't want to read the Bible through in one year, one time. You want to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation all the way through every year. Every year. From now until you die, Every year, you want to read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason why you want to read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation is that you want to be familiar with the Word. 
familiar with the word. If you read the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation every year, you'll be surprised as to your general knowledge of the Bible. Like, you'll, just reading it through from Genesis to Revelation, you'll know where the books of the Bible are. Right now, there are adults, not children. There are adults, if I say, turn with me to uh, a certain book of the Bible who goes to the index to find out where the book is. Well, if you're reading the Bible through from Genesis to Revelation, that won't happen. You'll begin to know where the book is. There are certain scriptures that's going to lock in to you if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, there are scriptures that when you read it, I'm not talking about study, you just read it, the Spirit of God is going to allow that verse to lock in to you. Um, so we want to read the Bible every year from Genesis to Revelation. I started preaching when I was 19 and I'm 68 now. When I, when I started preaching, my former pastor, the Reverend Thomas E. Sweeney, who's gone home to be with the Lord, told me something when I was a young preacher and I saw it come to pass. He told me, he said, son, get as much education as you can. He said, because the generation that you're gonna preach to is gonna be different from the generation that I have preached to. And I asked him, what did he mean by that? And this is what he told me. He said, the generation that I preached to were people who read the Bible. So when I got up to preach on, he says, they knew the story that I was talking about. He said, but the generation that you're going to preach to is going to be a generation that doesn't read the book. And you're going to have to be well-educated so that you're going to help them to understand what you're talking about even more readily so. And I saw it come to pass. When I first started preaching, I could take a text in the Bible and folk would get with me, you know, call and response. I'm preaching, they're responding. You know, they would get, me from the, get with me from the very start because they wasn't guessing about what I was talking about or where I was coming from or what the story was about. As the years went by, I saw a kind of silence come in the church where, you know, if I'm preaching for 40 minutes, it took people 20 minutes just to know, have a clue of what I was talking about because they were just that unfamiliar with the, with the Bible itself and just that unfamiliar with Christian doctrine, with the basic tenets of the faith. And so one of the things that I think that we need to do in the times in which we live is we need to recover um, the Bible. Because it could be that the Bible got lost in the church. That's a message right there. Yeah. We need to rediscover the Bible. People need to read the book. Now, I have mentioned this book to you uh, on several occasions um, by Richard Foster. Richard Foster. 
And the name of the book is Celebration of Discipline. Celebration of Discipline. It is one of the classic books about spiritual disciplines. It's a classic. It's, it's one of my top five books in my library. If, I, if you ask me, Pastor, what are your top five? Of course, the first one is the Bible. But, but Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, is going to be in the next, somewhere in the next four. Um, he talks about what all of the spiritual disciplines are of the Christian life. Reading the Bible or the Word of God is one of those spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. And then within that particular discipline, that is the Bible, there are two or three disciplines within it. One is you read the Bible, just read it. Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Read the Bible through in one year, just reading the Bible every day. You can read several chapters, and by the end of the year, you will have read the book through. Another discipline of the Word is study. You read the Word, you just read it. But another discipline related to the Bible is study. You study the Bible, you study the Word. And when you study the Bible, study the Word, that means you're going to do some exegetical work. That word exe exegete means you get behind the text. You got to study the context of the text. You, you do word study within the text. You find out who wrote that particular book of the Bible. You find out to who the writer was writing to. You find out why he's saying what he's saying. What are the issues? What are the nuances of the text? You want to find out what it meant then. Because if you don't understand what it meant then, how are you going to understand what it means to us now in the 21st century? You study the Bible. You read it. You study it. But a third discipline within that one discipline, the word, is meditation. Then you meditate on what you have read and you meditate on what you have studied. And the purpose of meditation is because I want to now make applicable to my life what I've studied. Can I ask you a question? Why study the Bible if you ain't gonna practice it? The reason for studying is to make what? Personal application of the word to your life, right? Okay, and then, and then why read the Bible if you, if you ain't gonna be a believer? I read the Bible because I'm a believer. There were, I don't know about you, but when I was unsaved, when I was unsaved, I didn't go to church. When I was unsaved, I didn't pray. When I was unsaved, I didn't read the Bible, I didn't study the Bible, I didn't meditate on the Bible. I didn't do none of that when I was unsaved. Didn't witness to anybody when I was unsaved. Now, if somebody asks me if I'm saved, I'm going to say yes. 
If that's my I'm a Christian, I'm gonna say yes. Shame on me. If I say I'm a Christian and all those things I just told you that I didn't do when I was unsaved, if I'm still not doing them. Because that would be suggested that I ain't changed. Hallelujah. Talk to me, somebody. Amen. So I'm saying to you, read Ezra, read Nehemiah, read 1 Timothy, read 2 Timothy. I'm not asking you to study it. I'm just saying what? Read it. And then at the end of June, I'm going to tell you, read these other books and read these other books in the Bible. But starting 2024, I'm going to give you a plan that together as a church family, we're going to read through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation in one year. And the good thing about doing it collectively as a church family is then you feel a part of an accountability group. Amen. Sister Dean and Sister uh, Dorsey, they're going to go walking in the Family Life Center. They're going to walk maybe two miles. <laughs> now, I don't know who's holding who accountable. I don't know who got the idea. I don't know if Sister Dean said, Joan, would you come walk with me? Or Joan said, Sister Dean, would you come walk with me? But whoever initiated it, what's happening is one of them, if not both of them, are holding each other accountable. Because if, if one of them say, I'm going to go walk two miles a day, and they're going by themselves, it's very easy that Sister Dean can talk herself out of it. But Joan calls and said, no, we walk it. Right? And vice versa. When you read the Bible through, through from Genesis to Revelation in one year, as a church family, you feel what? Accountable. You don't want everybody else to read through. And what? And you don't read through, right? Sometimes we need accountability partners. We need other people to help us to stay with it. Amen? Amen. And I keep before us, uh, not as a Pharisee, I just keep before us that it's, it's really not sufficient and is not good for us to confuse being a Christian with being religious. Because the two are not the same. You can say, I belong to Canaan Christian Church, you can say, I go to church sometimes. That don't mean you're a Christian. It might just mean that you are religious. The, the real deal is, am I practicing what I profess? Now, having said that, all of that I just said is still related to what I'm teaching right now about the order of the house. And I'm teaching about the order of the house because on this side of the pandemic, there is some spiritual renewing that God is fostering in the life of our church because of what God is purposing to do with us as the people of God in the times in which we live. And I have approached it thus far. I, I opened a gate with this study, helping us to understand that Canaan Christian Church did not get to where we are by accident. We got here because of Christian people who were 
serious in their commitment to Christ and in their obedience to the word of God and wanting to serve God with spiritual integrity. The last page in that book called The Journey that, that I'm encouraging you to get a copy of has a black and white picture, wonderful picture of three men, Hosey Bradley, Carl Coleman, and John Fresh. None of those three men made it out here. But we are out here because of those three men. Because those three men were trustees and they were not just trustees, they were Christian men who were committed to Christ and who gave integrity to what it meant to be an officer of the church and to understand the importance of Christian discipleship. And so we opened up with that and then I've shared with you uh, some general teachings, we could put it like that, general teachings about what church growth is all about and so forth. And I used some other books from other writers uh, to uh, uh, accentuate uh, what it means to take the word of God and then make it applicable through principles that we practice together as the people of God. Now, um, I, I was getting ready to actually bring two other books before your attention, one entitled Vertical Church and the other called Passionate Church. But uh, as I continue to pray about that, um, I felt the Spirit of God uh, directing me to just get really more just direct with this word and show it to you more directly just through the word of God. So that brings us to the book of Titus. Titus, Paul has written to Titus, a son in ministry who he had left on an island called Crete. And I want you to look at, at verse five. Verse five will serve as a kind of summary theme for the book of Titus. Verse five, chapter one, Titus, are you there? For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. For this reason, I set you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Titus, like Timothy, was a son in ministry to the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and Titus was a son in ministry of whom Paul was proud of and of whom Paul could refer to as a true son in ministry. Titus assisted Paul and he helped Paul with the difficult ministry at the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth. And now Paul has left Titus at the church on the island of Crete. The church at Corinth, the church at Crete, was not like the church at Philippi. It was not like the church at Ephesus, but particularly the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi was such a wonderful ministry experience, such a joyful experience for Paul in his ministry that when he thought about the church at Philippi, Paul says, every time I think about you, it brings joy to my heart. But the church at Corinth was a hellish church. Anybody know anything about a hellish church? 
just shout yes Jesus it was a it was a difficult church Corinth was a difficult church Crete was a difficult church and so it appears that among his sons that Titus was a son who Paul felt confident that I can send you to the difficult places. You know, Timothy had a reputation of being timid. So you, 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 you don't want to send Timothy to Crete. Every pastor can't survive a Crete church. Yeah. But Titus, he was a kind of like a spiritual Navy SEAL preacher, a spiritual Green Beret preacher, a spiritual hitman preacher. <laughs> Paul says, I need to send somebody that when I call them, they can say, uh, Godfather, all the family business. <laughs> has been taken care of. Yeah, yeah. Titus was a kind of spiritual Michael Corleone. He could handle difficult situations. Now, having said that, I want us today to just look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4 serve as Paul's greetings. See, this is a what? A letter. It's a letter. We have it now in this book called the Bible as part of Holy Scripture. But when this uh, message was first sent out, it was sent to Titus as a what? As a letter. Let, let me make this statement to you. I made this statement many years ago or at some point, but let me just say it as a reminder. See, one of the things that we got to remember when we study the Bible, and particularly, particularly the New Testament, is that uh, the people who wrote these epistles, Paul primarily, they didn't write it for you and I to read it. It wasn't written for us. It was never written for us to read it. And the reason being is because they lived with the attitude of the immediate return of Christ. They expected Jesus to return immediately. So they never thought that you and I would be born, that Christ would not have come yet, and that we would be here to read it. Now when you understand that, then it would behoove us to first and foremost understand again who the who it was written to why what they're saying and what the context is when we approach it that way then the holy ghost can help us to understand its application and meaning to us when right now because while the bible is an ancient book it is not an outdated book it speaks to our situations with clarity. I said it speaks to our situations with clarity right now. So verses 1 through 4 is part of what would be called a greeting. It's Paul's opening statement to Titus in this what? Letter. 
And uh, whenever you read Paul's epistles, it behooves us to take serious what he says in the greetings. His greetings, for the most part, Paul's greetings are very short. This greeting is longer than his normal greetings. Let's listen to what Paul says. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. According to the faith of God's elect and the, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the greetings. Now Paul opens up by telling us something about himself, right? How does he refer to himself? As a bond servant, and then as a bond servant of God, and then as an apostle of Jesus Christ. When Paul says he's a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's informing us about a transformation that has taken place in his life. He's a bondservant of God. He is a slave of God. Now Paul had called himself as a person who worshiped God before he became a Christian. In other words, he was a religious person before he was a Christian. He was, he was a person who would say, I believe in God. He was very Judaistic. He was a Jew. And out of his Judaistic background and attitude and upbringing, in his religiosity, he did not know the true and living God. Consider his background. Go back and read the book of Acts. And you'll find out that Paul was among those who were causing havoc in the Christian community. When they stoned Stephen, the Bible says that they took their cloaks and laid it at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. This is Paul. When you first meet him, you don't meet him as Paul. You meet him as Saul. They took their garments and laid it at his feet. He stood there and watched. Stephen stoned to death. Later on, Paul would tell you, he says, I've, I've seen many people die, but he'll tell you, I never saw a man die like Stephen. He said, I, I could never get it out of my mind because I never saw a man die and heard him while he was dying pray for the people who killed him. I saw men die before, but that's the first time I heard a man while he's dying say, God, do not lay to their charge what they're doing to me. He said he could never get Stephen out of his mind. And then you go on from there, and it says that Saul, who now we know is Paul, that he had gotten letters to go and have Christians arrested persecuted. He was responsible for many Christians losing their lives as martyrs. And one day on the Damascus Road as he was going to arrest others, 
he got arrested himself by the Lord Jesus Christ who spoke to him and said why are you persecuting me he would be knocked down from his horse he would become blind he would be led down a street called straight he would go to the home of a man by the name of Ananias Ananias was afraid to receive him but God told Ananias don't worry about it there's a work I'm doing in his life lay your hands on him and the scales are going to fall from his eyes and I will show him how many things he will have to suffer for my name's sake. Then this man who was known as Saul would then go to the Arabian desert for three years. God had to put him in, in a place of solitude because God had to change and straighten out his theology. And then he would come out of that and he would go to Damascus but the church would be afraid of him because of his past track record. Oh, let me just say parenthetically, all of us got a pass. You might think you ain't got one, but you got one. Amen. That's why we ought not look at other folks strange, because everybody got a pass. And, um, and then Barnabas, when nobody wanted to touch him, Barnabas, son of consolation, put his arms around him, told the church, let's receive him. So the man who had been known as Saul would be known as now Paul. And now as Paul, Paul says, I'm a bond servant of God. I'm a slave of God. Amen. And that's what all of us ought to be, beloved. We ought to be a bond servant of God, a slave of God. What does it mean to be a slave of God? Pastor speaks of the spirit of humility. Do you recall how arrogant you were before you got saved? Waltz Malone, do you understand how haughty you were before you got saved, Walter? But when you become a Christian, the call is to submit. It is to surrender our lives to Christ. You get off your high horse. See, before we were saved, everything was about us. Our ambitions, our aspirations, our goals, our wants, our desires. But, but when you get saved, a revolution takes place. Yeah, because now the attention ain't on me. Now the attention's on God. And everything that was at the top of my list gets to the bottom. And God becomes the priority. I'm asking God, what can I do for you? How can I serve you? Paul, again, the writer who writes to Titus, what does he say in one of his other epistles? I die daily. How much of you is still dying? Or are you still clinging to yourself? See, if I'm dying daily, then that means there's going to be more of Jesus and less of me. Yeah. He says, I'm a bond servant of God. Yeah, I'm a slave. The priority has to do with God. That's talking about a change. I'm a bond servant of God, and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, now the word apostle can be spoken with specificity and it can be spoken of in general. 
The word apostle can be spelled with a capital A, apostle. And when it's spelled with a capital A, it's making reference to the early apostles of the biblical record, biblical days. To be an apostle with a capital A, you had to have seen Jesus, witnessed witness Jesus, experienced him while he was in the flesh, and to have been a witness of his resurrection and ascension. Did, did y'all hear what I just said? To be an apostle with a capital A, you had to be a personal witness of Jesus in his life ministry and to uh, have sat at his feet. You, you had to have uh, been a witness of his resurrection and his ascension. That's apostles, capital A. Paul could speak of himself as an apostle of the capital A as one who was born out of season. You read this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, uh, and Paul talks about the authenticity of his apostleship with that sense, none different than um, Peter, James, John, and the other apostles. Now that's with a kind of specificity, capital A. And I'm just saying this, I'm not going to deal with it, uh, it, it I'm not going to delve, delve down into it, because uh, I don't want to spend my time on that. But uh, I sometimes ask myself, what are these current apostles talking about? And uh, what is their theological position as to how they feel that they can use apostle with a capital A when they didn't see his resurrection, they didn't see his ascension, they were not with him in the flesh. But you and I are apostles. You and I are apostles with little a. Because the word apostle, generally speaking, means what? One who is what? Sent. I wish I had three people today to know you have been sent. Jesus in, in the Gospels of in the Gospel of John, the resurrected Christ said to the apostles, and he says to us, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. You have been sent. That's why you and I ought to feel a spiritual discontent just going to church on Sunday and go home and have nothing to do with God again until next Sunday. We ought to feel uneasy. You ought not be able to sleep at night. When you don't been in, in, in church for 25 years and you ain't brought nobody to the Lord, how can you go to sleep at night? You were sent. Did you renege on your call? How are you going to be comfortable with that? Hallelujah. How can I be comfortable, Eugene, if I got folk in my own family unsaved? 
I got a mother over in Zion. But the only way I'll see her again is I got to be saved. So if other folk in my family ain't saved, they ain't going to see her. See, we don't like to hear it like that. Because it's too disturbing. You got people in your house and your family unsaved. You, you don't want to see them later on. You don't want them to see you later on in the father's house. The old folk had it right. None but the righteous shall see God. Amen. God gave everybody a free volitional will. My mama couldn't, she couldn't accept Jesus for me. She could tell me about him, but I had to accept him for myself. We just had Mother's Day Sunday. My mother's gone home to be with the Lord. But on Sunday, I could celebrate that I had a mother who told me about Christ. But my mama didn't save me. Christ saved me. And so people say, well, I'm going to go to church on Mother's Day because I'm going to go there and honor my mother. You ain't done nothing. Now, we don't want to hear it like that. We don't want to hear it like that. But the danger of it is you're playing Russian roulette spiritually. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be saved. Yeah, it is. And it's wonderful to lead others to Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. So Eugene, I just asked you that question. And I know I can't make my family love Jesus or give their life to him. But what I can do is I can do everything within my capacity to share Christ with them and to talk to them about Christ. Because I don't want to later on have any regrets and say, I didn't do what I could have done. And as long as I can go to sleep and say, I did everything I possibly could, I can go to sleep. But it would disrupt my spirit if I can't say I did my very best to try to lead my own family to Christ. Amen. I mean, think about it, church. I've been pastoring y'all for 40 years, one church. That don't include two other churches that I pastored. What would it look like if I would have, if, if at the end of my life, I would have led thousands of people to Jesus, right? And then ain't tried to get my own family saved. Wouldn't that be tragic? Yeah. Amen. Bond servant of God, apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. According to the faith of God's elect. Now, that, that phrase right there, God's elect, it's another challenging piece, Brother Mills. Because, see, the doctrine of election means that none of us were saved by accident. That our salvation did not start with our move. 
Our salvation started with the move of God. God moved and then we moved. Sister uh, Bola, Barbara, did you ever learn how to do the two-step? You know. You know how to do this. You know a gentleman takes you by the hand, Barbara. You, you know how to do this? Do you know how to do this where you don't step on his shoes? You know, you know, you, you follow his what? His lead. Yeah. And see, brothers, when you do two-step, you got to know how to lead. Be smooth with that thing. Yeah. Sound you remember this, baby? Hallelujah. Well, see, God, God leads in the two-step. He, he, he makes the first move. You just learn how to dance with him. Because, see, the question is, when did God decide to save you? Before you were born. I say, at some point in my life, I decided to make Jesus my choice. But when I decided to make Jesus my choice, I made a choice because I was already chosen. Now, the, 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 Robert, this gets difficult because now there's a tension. There's a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of mankind. There's a tension. See, he chose me before I chose him. Now you're talking about the sovereignty of God. But then I say, one day I had an encounter with Christ and I decided to make him my choice. Now that's the free volitional will of mankind. Now Robert, that's where the problem comes. Because in Romans, Paul says, God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. In Romans, around chapter 11, Paul says that it is to the Jew that God first brought salvation. The children of Isaac, not the children of Ishmael. Sarah's descendants, not Hagar's. And so he says then, everybody that's a Gentile, that's me and you. You ain't Jew. <laughs> he says we are like a wild branch that has been grafted in. Stephanie, you like to plant flowers. I know you. You done spent all last month planting flowers, digging, planting flowers. So you know what it means to find a wild branch and you graft it in to the main branch. Paul says we were a wild branch that was grafted in to the main branch. My wife, she likes to get out there and do that flower stuff too. She told me this morning she killed a mole. 
I found out, I didn't know this morning, I found out the moles are blind. She, she understands a wild branch grafted into the main branch. And Paul says that if you've been grafted in, and you was a wild branch, you've been grafted into the main branch, he says, never forget you ain't the root. You've been grafted in. Grace will do that. And Paul, what I like about Paul is Paul does not make it either or. Paul acknowledges without apology the sovereignty of God. And at the same time, Paul acknowledges the free volitional will of mankind. And so, and, and so when I talk about election, I tell people election is not so much about your position in heaven as it is about your purpose in time. Because you were saved with a purpose. And our, our difficulty, and it may have to do with still, we got too much arrogance, is that we don't want to acknowledge that there are, there are things about God that you can't fathom. God's bigger than you and I. And there's some things about his move I cannot fully understand. Because this ain't about an intellectual exercise. But I accept by faith what God has done. And I say to God, I'm embracing your word to the best of my ability through the teaching of the Holy Spirit that gives me wisdom and knowledge. And then I'm going to make it applicable to my life and then I'll just understand again what my foreparents told me. You'll understand it better by and by when the morning comes. When all the saints of God are gathered home, we'll understand it better by and by. But to God's elect, God's elect, that's who you are. God's elect. I wish I could see the hand of some saved people. Huh? Don't drop it. This is spiritual aerobics. <laughs> God's elect. Now, if you raised your hand, then talk to yourself. Don't, don't do it too long. But talk to yourself for about 10, 10 seconds or so. And tell yourself, say, I'm somebody. I ain't no junk. I belong to God. I'm God's elect. I'm God's, I'm God's elect. Now talk to yourself one more time. They say, say, it's time for me to start living like who I am. Live like who I am. And I have to take you serious as the people of God. I'm your pastor, but you don't belong to me. You belong to God. And I can't play 
with what belongs to God. I got to take serious. That's why I pray for you because it's my responsibility to pray for you. It's my responsibility. It's my obligation because you ain't just anybody. You belong to God. That's why I take serious this teaching his word to you because you ain't just anybody. You belong to God. And God wants me to what? Empower you through the what? The teaching of this word. Praise his holy name. Amen. And the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Now I'm a, I'm, I'm, we're not going to finish this salutation. We're not going to finish this salutation. We'll pick it back up next Wednesday. But I'm going to say these two things because we've got to get ready to pray. Salvation by faith leads to godliness. Salvation by faith leads to godliness. It leads to holiness. It leads to a sanctified life. Amen. And salvation by faith that leads to salvation, which leads us to godliness, holiness, sanctification. It gives us the security of our salvation. It gives us the security, the security of our salvation because we serve a God who cannot lie. And our brother Posey, when I say this, don't you hit Sister Posey. <laughs> our salvation is secure from eternity past to eternity future. It's secure. It's secure. Dr. Sharon Moore's sister passed. Passed this week. She found out Monday. Her sister died in her sleep sometime late Sunday night, early Monday morning. I said to Dr. Moore, I said, uh, did you have other sisters? She said, no. I said, that was my only sister, Pastor. She was my younger sister. I said, has she been sick? She said, no. So she had a challenge with cancer, but they had told her she was good. She was considered uh, clear or clean or whatever for 12 months, but everything was looking good. So we don't know what. We don't know why. I said, let me pray with you. I said, but it's okay. Dr. Moore said, yeah, Pastor. said she was saved. She said she loved God. She loved God's people. I don't know, Brother Ellis, the exact number. I don't know the exact number of how many funerals I've done or how many funerals I've attended.
to support a family or how many phone calls I've taken and talked to people when death broke the family bond. I don't know. Over the years, 40 years, it's a lot, a whole lot. But the one thing I can tell you that has been consistent that I've told everybody that your loved one who is saved, it's okay. It's all right. Because our God secures our salvation from eternity past to eternity future. He doesn't lose what he saved. So when a loved one passes, death ain't the end. It's just a vehicle whereby we move from time into eternity. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. Ain't that good news? That's good news. To know, Michael, that you can't lose your salvation. That when God saves you, he's able to keep what he saved. Amen. And, and all of this, beloved, has to do with the order of the house. Amen. So we're going to keep looking at Titus and we're going to make our way through this wonderful book of the Bible. And let God keep showing us what it means to have order in his house. Amen. Come on, let's give God some glory. The people represent the church no matter where we are. So stay connected and reach others as we grow in Christ.